Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, brought to you by the wonderful people at Kafka Associates, technology and data recruitment experts uh, covering Scotland, Manchester and um, Helsinki. I'm excited to be back in Finland for this show, talking to Oz Jencholu, co-founder and head of AI at Top Data Science, uh, a leading data science company headquartered in Helsinki, empowering their customers with innovative and reliable AI solutions. Welcome to the show, Oz. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for coming on. Like I said, we're uh, we're back in Finland for the show, so we, we um, had our our first ever Finnish guest on very recently. And uh, you're in are you in Helsinki? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Nice. Um, we'll go into your background a little bit uh, more to to work out how you got there. But we always start the show kind of jumping back into education and kind of like career background before um, you got to where you are now. It looks like from my, my research onto your LinkedIn that you've studied in a few interesting places. I think starting, first of all, with a kind of electronics and engineering degree in Turkey, though, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I got my bachelor's in um, electronics, uh, but more more focused on, uh, again, a bit more mathematics and signal processing. So kind of uh, it was more on the software and mathematics side. Nice. And uh, and you're Turkish, right? That's why you did your bachelor's in Turkey. That's correct. That's correct. And during my bachelor's, I also did a couple of um, exchange in one in US, University of Denver, and one in uh, Prague, Czech Republic. So oh, I've nice. been around a bit and also six months in Copenhagen, uh, Technical University of Denmark. Nice. Um, yeah, because I think, did you end up studying in Denmark or was that that six months? Was that part of the, the bachelor's? Yeah, it was actually. Oh, nice. Um, and does did did that type of degree at the time? Did it just lend itself well to travel into different universities, or did you really go and seek that? Like, did you want to go different places? I kind of, kind of seek that because obviously each country has their own culture, but also each university uh, has their own style of offerings, style of teaching. And I thought it would be it would be nice to also see something else, and um, a bit of a bit of variety in taking different courses, not only content wise, but but also style wise. You know, different countries, different universities have different, for example, styles styles of assessing a grade, different styles of teaching, and I think it was quite nice ex- exposure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and did you? Out of the places you studied, and we'll go on to your your masters and PhD shortly. But in the places you studied, did, did you find was there a style that suited you the best, or was it really just nice to see different stuff? Um, I like I like the Danish, uh, at least in the technical university, the Danish style was quite nice. So in Turkey, it's a bit more um, the, the grading and teaching is a bit more, let's say, competition based. So um, I would say the numerical grade does not matter that much, but the relative grade to the other peers, it, it, it kind of matters in the end in Turkey. So it's it's kind of this bell curve, this uh, normal distribution kind of way of grading. Hmm. Um, but in, in, in the Nordics, at least in Finland and um, also in, in Denmark, it was it was not a bit this kind of competition encouraging style of uh, teaching and grading 
I, I like competition. I, I, I have no problem with that. Actually, I like it. But in terms of at least in the higher, like let's say masters and PhD, I think uh, I like the Nordic style a bit. It's it just um, takes you as a single individual, as an entity, and uh, tries to teach irrelevant of what your friend next to you is doing. So I, I, I like that. Nice. So that makes sense. And one of the things I've never really understood about some universities, and, and there's one that I know of in Scotland, that if too many people do well, they raise the bar of what... Yeah. Is. So like one of my friends, if one of my colleagues got a really, really high mark in physics at um, St. Andrews University, but because a lot of the people in the class got even higher, like way higher than expected, the degree classifications went up. Mm. So you could you can come out with a so-called lesser degree, even though you've got what most universities would class as a, a first class. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't really understand that. Surely there's there's a bar, and if, if everyone hits it, then that's just because you had a really good year or really good teachers. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so no, that makes sense. And yeah, so I touched on it there. So you moved to um, you moved to Finland uh, yeah. for your master's in machine learning and then a PhD in machine learning. Why? Uh, what kind of drew you to Finland? So after being exposed to all these different, let's say, um, universities, different countries, different culture, I thought I thought I liked it actually. I liked traveling, not only traveling, of course, for the sake, like as a as a tourist, but a bit living abroad and I had a couple of friends who did an exchange in Finland when I was in Denmark and when we when we were talking they said this place suits you like you're outdoorsy or things work here I like this kind of organized way of lifestyle this kind of Nordic model and I thought yeah why not Uh, I applied I got a master's degree in in this city called Tampere one of the one of the big cities in Finland, mm, relatively big <laughs> Finnish Finnish relative. I'm talking about, and um, I got to the technical university, Tampere Technical University, to study my masters. Amazing! And when you did your bachelor's in Turkey, did you always think that kind of further education, so doing a master's and then obviously into your PhD, was that always the kind of route you were going to go down? I'm kind of an academic type in the sense that I like, I'm quite curious and I like to dig a bit deeper. So to be honest, I knew I was going to do masters because bachelors is a bit, a bit, a bit more, you take a bit of broad, broad understanding, but I wanted to dig a bit deeper. I didn't know uh, if I would continue PhD. So that's something I decided after finalizing my masters. And actually I have, um, I'm just now finalizing my PhD thesis, so it's um, it's like finalizing now. Uh, but I didn't know oh I'm gonna be full academic and full PhD when I was studying back in bachelor's. Yeah, no, that makes sense, and it's interesting. So you obviously will get into to what you're doing now, but you obviously are are a senior part of a a data science company, but you just said there like you're you're just finalizing the PhD. So yeah. in terms in terms of that process of doing a PhD, how how did you find it? Because it's I mean you mentioned like a bachelor's is quite broad. Like you get quite a lot you get you learn quite a lot, but not in huge amount of detail over three, four years. And then a PhD is normally between kind of four and five years on almost one thing um 
did you enjoy the process of doing the PhD? I I kind of did because um, I think in bachelors, I, how I see is more like during bachelors, you mostly learn what you don't want to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> to be very honest, like, okay, these, these, these subjects, because you take so many things that, okay, this I will not continue. And, and that's a great learning. So I will focus on these. And master's is more like, okay, I want to do this. Uh, this kind of thing so it's like another filter and phd i i don't think it's very comparable to to masters or anything like that because um obviously you have more agency and you have more responsibility and it's more it's more up to you so like you are a really adult and it's not like you have uh only incentive to 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 get some good grades but you need to actually contribute to science so the mindset is quite different my journey is a bit um unorthodox i would say because uh, i found a company and grew it before finalizing my phd simply because the opportunity came so the order order was a, a bit shuffled so i had to also shuffle the tasks of research and industrial industrial work and management work but um i think that's okay you don't have to always have to follow the exact same route and same sequence of doing things in in your career i think yeah and i think a phd is much closer to a full-time job than it is to a bachelor's or a master's degree like it just so happens to be in the same building but it's a totally different lifestyle and, and skill set so yeah you probably learned loads in your phd that you can that you can put into a company and and vice versa i'm sure which which works quite well um and yeah something we always go into with anyone that's done a phd is is like what do you do after so mm. i know you did a bit of kind of research work at it and and continued on with um with that side of doing your phd was there a chance before top data science became a thing that you would potentially be working in academia for, for a long, long time, doing various different roles, potentially at different universities or, or staying where you were? It, it was a possibility, but I have to admit I was also having the same question that what what would I do after PhD? So um, this was already in in the beginning of the phd because i founded actually top data science uh, basically in the beginning of my phd journey so it's a bit of a leap of phd is a bit of a leap of faith in the in the sense that you focus you become an expert in in this thing and it's maybe in terms of risk diversification it's not the optimal one because you are really concentrated in terms of one topic and it's risky but for me for me it was a good balance in the sense that the skills that you learn in 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 the science part phd part and the knowledge and skills you learn in the industry they are orthogonal so they complement each other and if you can balance it out it kind of boosts both sides in my view obviously you need to avoid burnout but uh, I think it it was it was quite a quite a good balance. It took a bit longer, sure, a couple of years longer than typical PhD, but um, that's the price you pay. 
yeah, and, and I think probably what you've gained from it is much more than if you hadn't done it this way around. So um, let's go into, I think it was like April 2016 time when Top Data Science kind of became a company. And you said that was near the start of your PhD journey. So how did that kind of, how did that opportunity arise and, and what was the kind of initial idea behind the company? Yeah, I've we have found in 2016 officially with my two co-founders, but we knew each other, I would say, one year before that. Obviously, you don't start a company the first day you meet. <laughs> um, so actually, I was, while finalizing my master's, I was thinking, okay, what's happening in the industry? Let's check and just go to some meetups and just let's let's check check what's what's happening actually and uh, i want to emphasize that back then machine learning scientists even data scientists it was not like how it is today it was not like very common roles or you wouldn't i don't think i have ever seen machine learning engineer machine learning scientist this kind of titles back then in the industry yeah definitely now, not uh, so it, I mean, it was a bit different, but I have met uh, in 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 that kind of um, networking and event uh, events and talking, having coffee with different people in Helsinki, just trying to understand the landscape of data science in the industry. I have met a couple of people that we clicked, so we shared the same vision. One Finnish co-founder of mine and one Vietnamese, and the vision was that. Um, this is coming big time. Like, yeah. uh, that's it. Mm, and we didn't have an idea in the sense that we didn't have a product or a, like a killer app or whatever you call it. So we thought, okay, let other people come with their problems and we solve it. It was really like that. So it's not, I'm, I'm being very honest right now. So that's why we are, we started as a consultancy and we, we are good at solving problems with machine learning and our clients are good at having problems. <laughs> it's it's really like that. And then we clicked and I was a researcher. They had nice jobs in Accenture and like all that. And we started a bit, a bit let's say, evenings, weekends, small projects. And then, okay, this is rolling. Let's take a leap of faith, quit our jobs and start something and that that's how it started that's pretty cool and i like that idea as well because you often see like startups and entrepreneurs talking and like they've got this like one thing they came up with this like this product this app this service mm. whereas yeah you guys knew what you were very very good at and yeah. i suppose the good news is lots of people aren't very good at it um, exactly. So yeah, you, you've got a, you've got a solution to some people's problems, and I suppose the kind of beauty of AI and machine learning is quite often you can show people, even if they don't have a huge problem, you can show people some really nice benefits quite quickly through kind of like small projects or proof of concept, and that yeah. allow, that allows you to do more and more and more. So I suppose that's quite good as well. Exactly. It's not it's not like you build a website and then you can just leave and never never speak to them again. Like you can kind of do more and more and get more complicated if if they need it. So no, that's quite cool. Um and does the company look massively different today 
than what the three of you thought it might look like when you took that kind of initial leap of faith, or, or is it really just a bigger version of it? Uh, it's it's quite different, I would say, because back then, of course, um, the scale is different uh, in terms of just how running things and making decisions. And most importantly, in 2018, we were acquired by a Japanese company. So that um, that also put things into a different different light and a bit more structured there listed in like Tokyo Stock Exchange and so the administrative and reporting uh, is a bit different uh, work style has changed a bit but um, we still keep the agility of of or or, or that mindset and um, culture still of like a small quick swift agile decision making and flexibility we, we still have that nice and so when the three of you set it up, how did you decide things like what projects to work on, how much to charge people for it? Like Because it probably sounds quite boring, but when you, get a, when you get three technical people into a room or two technical people and one ops person or whatever it might be, it, it's quite important to decide early on, like how, how does this all work? Yeah, yeah. That that that's super important. Thank you for asking this question. So um, we three, two of our technical and um, one one sales and business person. So I think that is that worked quite well for us. That we are not all business or we are not all technical. I, I think that was a good balance. And one thing about I don't know if it's about our characters or our or our communication or whatever was that we let each other play ball. So our our CEO doesn't try to tell me how to solve this machine learning problem and I'm not trying to uh, teach him how to sell. So <laughs> let me let me play ball man let me like it was really like that from the get go. So full trust when he sells he knows I can deliver and vice versa. So that was almost like kind of a foundation of things and how to put this into practice so how to how to get projects how to um as you said how to charge or how much to charge how to estimate that was of course a bit trial and error not only because we were new and we were a startup but the field the the whole industry was trial and error because (laughs) so it's it's there's no other way that uh, there was there was no standard of uh let's say charging or pricing or proposing AI solutions in the industry. Now there is, I mean, it's quite mature and markets are kind of efficient, but uh, back then also the buyers were trying doing trying and error. So by definition, you have to do the try, trying and everything. So, uh, but after a couple of, couple of months, couple of projects, maybe one year, you converge to a nice understanding and, you go from there. No, that makes sense. Um, and yeah, the timing that when you guys got into the market, yeah, it was a little bit, uh, there was a kind of real boom kind of late 2016, 2017, 2018. And then it's kind of slowly started to mature a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, timing-wise, great from you as it happens. Is there areas or industries that, that you focus on? Like is there kind of, is there specific niches or do you just solve problems? No matter where they are, 
Um, we are not, we are not, let's say, focused to any industry, but in terms of nature of the problem, we are pretty heavy with computer vision and um, image and video analysis. Uh, that's one thing. And we had quite, quite nice concrete business value and concrete results in also industrial settings like, um, really optimizing processes, quality assurance in product lines in factories uh, but again we are not focused in focused on in this specific industry yeah i'm sure lots of your solutions could be tweaked for most industries you would just have to look at the problem and see what you could do i think you guys had some pretty pretty cool success with um was it helsinki hospital is that right we had we had we had one one project with uh, it was a several parties Helsinki University Hospital that was more um, more medical and um, that kind of industry but again it was computer vision like trying to trying to detect uh, and understand how prostate cancer evolves in the in the tissue um, again same technology we are applying to for example assessing quality of welding in the industry in in automotive industry so uh, people might think how what does cancer have to do with welding but uh, this is the this is the cool thing with machine learning it's it's like uh, the raw data it has similar nature which is images yeah no exactly and and i feel like computer vision itself is do you, is it still relative in its relative infancy? Do you think in terms of the applications of it? So, like, I feel like some of the examples we've been given on the show in terms of warehouses or, like you said, welding or, or farms, um, in terms of like crop control and stuff. Like, I feel like we're just getting there. Like, there's so many more potentially, uh, potentially amazing like places you could apply it. To be honest, I agree, and the reasoning is this. Not only that there are, let's say, application opportunities that has never been done before with machine learning, with computer vision, but also um, I think it's good to remember that computer vision is not a new field. I mean, it has a long history, but it was more traditional computer vision, which is more rule-based, which is more um, maybe digital image processing style and the applications that has you have have been using them they can be significantly improved in terms of um, accuracy in terms of speed whatever metric you want to choose with actual ai based computer vision so um, you can also revisit what has been done uh, to improve that and i think that's why we have lots of room still yeah um, and i suppose generally speaking as well like you must look back to 2016 when you started and looking at the kind of tooling that was available for a data scientist or a data company and then you look now in 2021 or the end of 20 and like we're not we're not even close to being finished yet but it's there's so much more available now to, to make delivering projects easier is that fair to say yeah that is fair to say and and also um i think it's good to remember that some of the solutions, um, let's say machine learning solutions, uh, developed, they are consumed by by humans. Okay, kind of decision assistance or decision support. But more and more, it will be also machine learning solutions 
that will be consumed the the decision will be consumed by another algorithm or another digital system or a hard like something non-human which once we do these applications once we get them to real life it opens a new level meaning that you can optimize that thing another level more and make the whole thing automatic etc so um i think that's a fair statement that we have we have we have lots of room to room to go and that's exciting also yeah no i bet um and let's go back quickly to um you mentioned it there about being acquired um by a japanese company in 2018 so that i mean it's pretty unheard of for a small startup whether it's in data science or whatever um to be acquired in in their first two years of, of being in existence um how, how did that come about? Like, was there a chat between the three of you at the start saying, let's build something and sell it? Or did it just happen? It just happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like that. So we have never even had a single chat of, hey, let's build this for for the, for the goal of selling it in two and a half years. That is unheard of, right? I mean, that's a short time. Yeah. And it just happened like that so uh, basically the the company who acquired us called morpho they became a client first so obviously it doesn't happen overnight so you we we developed a couple of solutions for them um, they enjoyed our uh, quality and they realized we are we are good at this and then it became more like a partnership more like an engagement thing supporting each other and then they came up with an offer and it was it was good so um that's really how it happened that makes sense um and what so what do what did morpho do like what where where is their business so and kind of how did you guys fit into that yeah morpho is specialized in um, camera software so they they sold billions of licenses Probably your phone has one of there. So when you open HDR or panorama stitching, whatever algorithms in the camera of your phone, that's 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 Morpho's algorithm, likely. So um, they are really good at uh, computer vision and uh, image image processing on on running on let's say smartphones and this kind of low computation uh, environments. So it fit well. Because we were also we we are we are doing lots of solutions in computer vision, but it it kind of complemented us because they are also good at low this kind of embedded and low level uh, implementations of things in in the phone and in specific hardware, uh, which we didn't have that kind of knowledge. Yeah, that makes sense, and, and it sounds like a great way of doing a kind of acquisition or selling your company because quite often you build something and then a huge organization from left field just wants to purchase a computer vision company so they just throw a number at you and then mm-hmm. the company totally changes the the culture changes but they just want the technology essentially or they want yeah. they want a part of the business maybe not all of the business but the fact that you guys had like a partnership in place and it almost was like well, why don't we just do this? Like, it, yeah. make, it makes sense. And all three founders are still there, right? The company still runs kind of as it did before, just with, a, yeah. I imagine, with a wider reach and maybe, uh, I don't know, just make, makes life a bit easier sometimes. 
Yeah, we 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 three co-founders we are still there and um, we still have that let's say independent spirit. So there's no micromanagement or thing like that. Um, it's just we have more more security, more muscles to, as you said, to to expand. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. It it as you said, it also made sense this kind of smooth transition instead of instead of an abrupt abrupt acquisition where disrupts the culture and the, it's very common as you said that kind yeah. of scenario yeah. yeah definitely especially when from different countries as well where like two kind of cultures just clash yeah um do you get to go to japan is that an option yeah i've been there several times nice and uh, we just continue your travel for work i like it one of the things we always touch on on the show is uh kind of growing in recruitment so obviously there was three of you as a founding team two technical one kind of ops um, and sales what was the process like when you guys got busy enough that you thought right we need some people here like how did those discussions go how did you decide what you needed and uh, and then was it an easy process in terms of keeping the kind of culture and growing a team Mm -hmm. I I don't think it was an easy process to be very honest. <laughs> not necessarily not necessarily from the financial point of view like oh let's hire a couple of people not necessarily because of the accounting and financial point of view but more on the delegation and trust point of view right because when you've been doing, when you know you can do it but still you don't have enough resources in terms of time you need to delegate and you need to trust that this person can handle. And that comes to, of course, finding the right person. Uh, but at some point, it, it became very clear that you need to do that because otherwise there's an opportunity and you're going to say no. You have to say no because you don't have you don't have the resources. And also it comes with the understanding that it's very natural. The more you grow, the less you're going to do maybe hardcore coding work, hardcore implementation, but a bit more managerial, a bit more management, a bit more expectation management, a bit more people, uh, project management. And um, it's, it's, it's fair that you get a bit of that when you, and when you hire new people and if you can accept that or the sooner you accept that, uh, the better, at least for a, for a technical person. Yeah. And yeah, that's how it happened, how it happened. And as a technical person, because I suppose your CEO, for example, they were doing the sales. And and in a lot of cases, the CEO is still the best at sales because it's their company. So like they will do potentially just kind of inherently do more. But you can kind of teach some of that and you can bring people in and, and they can still be involved quite heavily. So they can still go to client meetings. They can still sign the contract, all those things. Um, for a technical person, quite often when we speak to people who've went to head of data science or um, managing a team of data scientists, they're quite often their only involvement with like hands-on technical work is helping someone fix a problem or or showing them showing a member of staff something new or whatever it might be but you don't often get to sit down and just just do some technical work is that the case for you or do you try and keep hands on at the same time i used to i used to keep up quite a lot simply because i i i like it and um, i still do a bit but um, as you said it's not that much anymore so 
um, I am more more like guiding guiding the team, what to implement, how to implement, um, etc. Than implementing it myself. So, and also this comes to the a bit to the recruiting that recruitment point of view that um, yeah, hire people that can do that better than you. <laughs> so it's easy. No, really. Yeah. So that it's easy to delegate, and they are. So I think it's it's really entwined or how do you say it's very um, together coupled with the the recruitment point of view no that makes sense and and have you grown the team entirely in Helsinki is that right so the team is all together in Helsinki that's correct nice and with I know Finland had slightly I think I'm right in saying this we're we're slightly more open than a lot of the the countries and with COVID but did you have to have an element of working from home and then um, get people back to the office or have you guys always been quite flexible anyway we have been always quite quite flexible, I have to admit, even before this whole thing. But during during last one and a half, two years, we were we've been working from home, and it's hybrid nowadays. So meaning that some people go go to office every every now and then, maybe a couple of days a week. They like to a bit chat and a bit change of environment, and that's okay. I sometimes go, maybe rarely, but sometimes just just go and it's it's quite really flexible in in our perspective nowadays nice and that, that will help with recruitment as well i'm sure and have you found any anything that really works for you or or, or the company when it comes to hiring really good data people because um i think i found uh, a funny post you did on linkedin where you were saying that you really hate the question of like what do you bring that's different to other candidates when the candidate doesn't know who else you're interviewing? It's a really stupid question. Yeah, I, I think it's quite a silly question to ask. I don't know if it's if I'm missing something really, but why would you ask a candidate what differentiates you from other people? You, the candidate doesn't know who are the other candidates. So in, in my sense, the key to recruitment, uh, of course, we have we have done that quite a bit. And... Mm, some people also leave and like it's not like you that's how especially in our field so it's it's not like once you recruit somebody um you expect them to be for 10 years <laughs> like it's not like that and that's okay uh, but from from my learnings couple of points that helped is one not to be too obsessed with the education background yeah uh one of the what, like couple of best data scientists I work with they had they didn't have let's say computer science background um, really and second point I would say is that I personally look a lot for if the candidate has done a, even a hobby project or something something very small it doesn't have to be big by himself or herself end to end end to end means Starting from a problem, collected data, annotated it, if 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 relevant, build a model, maybe quickly productionize it. Or I mean, productionizing it, it sounds like a fancy word, but quickly putting it a demo and presenting it to me, which is a bit sales part. So really having an understanding of the whole life cycle, uh, even though the data scientists will be mostly working on the technical part. I realized that people who have done this, they have a better understanding, better empathy, empathy on uh, on the what happens before a client side, 
data collection, etc., expectations, and the salespeople because they have demoed it, they have presented it, and they have done it. So uh, this kind of not being too obsessed with uh, uh, oh this algorithm, how would you implement that? That's important, obviously, but also a bit one level up, one step back, a bit bigger picture. Those people have been have been the best. Yeah, no, it's really interesting you mentioned that about not being obsessed with the education background, because especially with someone with a PhD, because quite often you can find that the head of data science has a PhD, so everybody they want to hire best have a PhD. And like you said, that that you're taking away from some potentially very good people. And then I suppose the flip side of that as well is the way you just said that in terms of either a hobby project or just an example where they've t- taken something end to end. We've had some people on the show before saying that they would much rather hire someone that's actually got something into production or demo, like uh, kind of like it would be in production, um, than someone that's obsessing over making a model one percent more accurate. Because, Absolutely, because that's not the point. And especially, I suppose, from your point of view, you're trying to solve customers' problems not necessarily get them the 100% perfect solution every single time. Exactly, exactly. And this point of uh, that person being able to uh, demo something quickly, productionize something, it's, it's, it's important to, of course, being able to do it in a, in a technical sense. But I think what's even more important is that understanding of that process. So this person did it so he, he or she understands that uh, it takes this, this, this to make it happen. So this really decreases the gap between, uh, let's say, machine learning experts and software team or uh, machine learning engineering team, uh, machine learning experts and the client. So it kind of smooths this this kind of gap or transition because there's higher understanding because this person did that. There's it's It's really a human thing in my view. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And then I suppose lastly, and it's just something that, that came to my head just now, you said you do a lot of computer vision work and you see it happening more now that people are kind of calling themselves a computer vision engineer or an NLP expert or there's different silos people are going down, machine learning engineer, like you said earlier. Do you think that the people that were maybe a more generalist data scientist can easily switch into a computer vision focus and NLP focus. Just it's a similar, similar skill set, just a different focus. Is that fair, or do you think it's quite nuanced? I'm to be honest, I'm a bit against uh, that kind of silos of oh, this is this is a NLP expert and this is a computer vision and these are very separate boundaries. I don't believe in that because I have seen otherwise. Let me give you an example. Audio classification, classification of sounds. It was a, it was a task. It was a project and sounds, audio, you, you expect you, you need like expert in, in audio and sound, let's say depth of things. How we solved that problem was that you can take the, frequency transform a spectrogram we call it of a sound which is an image and we applied computer vision techniques to classify the image to classify the sounds so uh, we have solved an audio sound classification problem with computer vision 
there is there's like lots of cases like that for example we had um we had a problem where we were forecasting sales and we have in the end we ended up using uh, such a machine learning model or neural network if you if you want details which was designed or specifically used for uh generating actually speech so uh so my point here is that uh, I don't think it's very optimal to be obsessed with boundaries of computer vision and NLP and you can't change it and you you need super specific people uh, I think it's it's good to be open minded because these these kind of in the in the machine learning research these fields actually inspire each other a lot yeah like we we see it all the time so uh, why not? Why would you expect otherwise in the industry, right? Yeah. So I think I think uh, I'm not saying it's uh, you can tra- let's say be an NLP expert uh, if you are a computer vision expert, you can be an NLP expert in in a in a week or something in a couple of months. But it's not impossible, and there are lots of common let's say common concepts. Uh, after all, it's it's mathematics, and this is there there are lots of common paradigms and concepts in these fields yeah no i think that's yeah i mean most of the problems boil down to maths and stats right like if if you want to strip it back to its most basic form um so yeah that that makes sense and i totally agree with you actually i i never a huge fan when a a client looks to for us to help them and they will only hire someone with computer vision experience for their computer vision role when potentially someone else could be a really good fit for that position. So um, no, that makes sense. Um, and then a last question for, for me, what are the plans for top data science going into kind of 2022 and beyond? Is it very much keep doing what you're doing and, and grow the team and and keep going as you are? Um, we don't want to, we don't want to grow for, in for the sake of growth. So we don't want to hire 10 people and then start to think, Oh, what would be the what would be how to how to make use of these people the best and how to keep them happy it's it's the other way around uh so basically it's a dance between it's a dance between sales like the and recruitment so um they they kind of grow together it it's never one one goes too far ahead of the other so i think we would continue that so like we are growing our sales and maybe not necessarily more number of projects but more projects that are bigger and like um, Mm. that go into full production not only production but operationalizing it like full support and maintenance long term uh long term business value so um, that definitely reflects or will reflect to our recruitment i would say no, I really like that answer, actually. It's not often you hear people who don't just want to say they want to grow, grow, grow and hire 50 data scientists. Because I always get wary of, of companies who their only goal is to grow. Like, what are, like, why are you doing it that way? So, no, I really, yeah, I really exactly. like Yeah, that makes sense. And also, from your point of view, it would be less fun if you had 200 people in the office and there wasn't that many projects to work on or whatever happens. Like, you want to keep, there's something to be said for being, like, just big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, which I quite like. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really do appreciate it. Excited to get this, get this one out and and uh, and share the the top data science story. Thank you very much for inviting. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.